BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. You're listening to the Fade to Gray Network. So have revivals and conventions and The Fade to Gray Network presents you with a free online conference called the Big Tent Revival. Coming to you on May 16th through 17th, we'll have interviews with Rick Allen Ross, Robert Munson, David and Lisa Lunsford, Carl Idlewild and Renee Ocean, Aaron Weiss, Ukulele Russ. Get a behind-the-scenes look at a recording of the Fade to Gray podcast. Interact with Foreign Toe Podcast, enjoy a game of Movies That Molded Me, check out Mental, and don't forget, a comedy set with Amanda Martin. This is not something you want to miss. That's the kind of Holy Ghost I got! That's the kind of Holy Ghost I got! I am so excited. Welcome, welcome to another live Fade to Grey event. Woo! Hallelujah! Big Tent Revival. Come on in. Come on in. Come closer. Come up closer so you can feel the Holy Ghost. I feel the love in the house tonight, Brother Omar. Oh, I can feel the love. I have been anticipating this day for a long time. We are entering into some uncharted territories, I feel like. I have never seen a, a, well, free live all-day event, and I am... I don't think I have either. um, I'm being sponsored today by Bang, so... Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, it's my energy drinks. And, um, you know, got my flag gear on. Thank you, my poor Seth gear. And we are Please. kicking off this Big Tent <laughs> Revival with an amazing guest, Rick Allen Ross. Rick, thank you so much for being here. This, this guy, for me, let me tell you a little bit about Rick. Rick is an expert, like legally an expert on cults. Uh, Rick was the founder and executive director of the Cult Education Institute and author of the book, Cults Inside and Out, How People Get In and Can Get Out. Um, He's worked with the Branch Davidians during Waco and before Waco, deprogramming uh, um, a couple of them. I I don't know the number. I think a handful of them will say. Um, I think at this point, he's deprogrammed over 500 um, people who have left cults is that, is that true i heard that on a podcast is that an accurate number Rick? yeah it's i've done over 500 interventions wow that's, that's amazing. Well, amazing and then yeah also has worked with far cry the video game uh, as far as if you guys have played the new game and there's i guess there's a cult there and it's it very realistic based off of some cults that are are real and they used rick's expert knowledge with that as well as there's there's more on the list here. There's more on the list. Um, he is also uh, considered an expert witness by state and federal courts. Um, I believe it's at least ten states he's testified as an expert witness, 
and also as well as U.S. federal court. So wow. kind, of a, kind of a big deal. And um, if you guys know mine and Elizabeth's story, we met in YWAM. Some people say it's a cult. Some people say it's not. I guess it depends on your director. Um, and spent a long, uh, most of my adult life in what would be considered discipleship programs, which are community-based living, kind of cult-like. And, you know, fade to gray, you know, we're considering, you know, our options of becoming a cult one day. So, so, so we're bringing <laughs> no, Rick, Rick on. No, we're not. <laughs> so we're no. bringing Rick on to basically tell no, us how to, no, how, we're not. how to not become a destructive <laughs> cult and only be constructive, you know, like my boys, the Grateful Dead. So Rick, thank you so much for being here. And like I said, very excited well, that, to have you. Th- thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Yeah. We're super stoked to have you on, man. This is incredible. We, you know, we all have a background of religion in our lives. Uh, some of us have, you know, been part of YWAM, which I don't know if you consider that a cult or not. Some of us have been part of, um, you know, churches that were heavily, you know, fundamentalist and, you know, had this cult like, uh, uh, attitude or we had cult like experiences. Uh, so we are, yeah, beyond excited to talk to you about your expertise and all this today. So thank you so much for being here. And Rick, my name's Seth, and I am. We are really thrilled. Hi, Seth. Um, I thought you were going to say you're a licensed clinical social worker. <laughs> this is not a mental episode. This is a faded gray. Just episode. give him, just give him time, Chris. It'll come later. Okay. All right. <laughs> Rick, as you can see, there's some there's some humor in this group, uh, but I'm really thrilled to have you on uh, with us today. I I think right now, especially with everything that's going on in the world, I mean, Colts seem to become be becoming very kind of popular in 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 folk fiction and also in just common talk and i mean it's happening around and so america's the I'm biggest really, cult there is i mean <laughs> i'm really excited uh to hear more about uh your experiences so omar so rick basically let's just get started with the most basic question you know what is a cult what defines a cult well, I think it's not about what the group believes. It's about how the group is structured and behaves. So in my book, uh, Cults Inside Out, I have a chapter defining a destructive cult. And I identify what I would call the nucleus for a definition of a destructive cult, which has three core criteria. The first one is an absolute authoritarian leader who becomes an object of worship. And the group is defined by that leader as personality-driven And whatever the leader says is right is right. Whatever the leader says is wrong is wrong. And there's no meaningful accountability for that leader, uh, a virtual dictator. And then two, you have a process of indoctrination in the group uh, that some have called coercive persuasion or thought reform in which people are compromised. Their critical thinking is broken down and they become dependent upon the leader and the leaders designated subordinates to think for them and make value judgments for them. They come under what you can see as undue influence. And then finally, the leader in the group uses their undue influence to exploit, take advantage of, and do damage to the members. Uh, And it varies by degree from group to group. So some groups are much worse than others you see this uh, destructiveness in the harm and, and, you know, basically people coming away from the group, uh, wounded, uh, damaged, uh, under a lot of emotional distress, psychological damage, or they're just broke because they've been cleaned out, or it can escalate to medical neglect, people dying, 
uh, criminal activities, physical abuse, child abuse, etc. So those three core criteria, the leader, the process of breaking people down and gaining undue influence over them, and then using that undue influence to take advantage of people and do harm. Wow, I'm triggered. I don't know about the rest of you guys. Um, I'm writing down these three criteria and I'm basing my experiences I had in Alaska. And I mean, let me just say this. First of all, I don't think that um, any of the directors or people that were in leadership were trying like trying to lead a cult. I think that like they were doing what they believed was correct for something that they had learned and worked for them. Um, And and the aftermath was definitely destructive um it i would definitely consider a cult especially by this criteria like it it pretty much nails all three of them the absolute leader part um it's a little iffy because there's supposed there's supposed to be checks and balances and so like the school i was in like there was a senior pastor who was over top of the director of the school so like the director didn't have absolute power um, but I was actually part of one in North Pole, Alaska, that the the board of the church shut down. And at the time, I and mean, that was like I didn't really understand it. They were asking us questions. They definitely thought it was a cult because I think that that director and the senior pastor never really got along. And so, like the director was pretty much doing running the program however he saw fit. Which, as a student who like trusted, I called the guy like my spiritual father. He had this whole like thing. He wrote this book on fathering and. And, you know, it, it's really weird, like, right, to say it, like, to talk about it now. I mean, it, it, but I, I love the guy, you know, so I don't really, like, want to talk negatively about him. I don't think he was trying to do anything to harm That's to just harm indoctrination, people. man. I know. That's just indoctrination. I, I, I know as I'm saying that it feels that way, but, I mean, he yeah. he's, he wasn't, he, I mean, he could probably, he could be an asshole, but he wasn't a bad guy, you know, and then, so I watched that whole thing fall apart and then was a part of another master's commission program down the road in Wasilla and uh, watched the same sort of thing happen there where, where, but the senior pastor was pretty much leading the school there. And that was more of an absolute leader sort of situation. And there absolutely is a process of indoctrination and myself and my wife can testify that it hurts people. So yeah, I guess, um, it was cult life for, for sure. <laughs> well, you know, look, I've, I've received a lot of complaints about Youth with a Mission, uh, which was founded by Lauren Cunningham. I, uh-huh. I don't see Cunningham as an object of worship and, and a kind of Jim Jones, David Koresh kind of messianic figure. But what I would describe YWAM as, in my opinion, is a destructive authoritarian group with a lot of casualties, a lot of wounded people, a lot of people that got hurt in those DTSs, and a relentless controlling authoritarian regime that varies somewhat from one DTS to another because they're kind of like franchises. But um, I wouldn't recommend YWAM to anyone under any circumstances, period. I mean, I just think there are many alternatives to getting hooked up with YWAM, and they've got a very troubled history, and anybody that's even thinking about it uh, should look into that history. And the Cult Education Institute database has a subsection on YWAM, and I think if you read those testimonials and you read the research and and the news reports, uh, you're going to be thinking, hey, 
What about uh, doing volunteer work at a church um, soup kitchen or something else in my community, not YWAM? Yeah, or in Master's Commission, I think, is even a little bit more extreme. And, and the whole thing is you're paying your own money, sometimes up to ten grand, to go basically clean toilets for a year. And, and be slave labor and expected to do it with a, a joyful attitude. And you're basically paying to keep the lights on in the building, but treated like you're like the most lowly of the low. So it's very. Yeah, I think the only thing that's joyful about a toilet is sitting on it and unloading. I, <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine cleaning the mess being joyful. It's all about the treasures in heaven. I'm <laughs> singing for joy. Uh, but you know what? I, I think these groups that have a discipleship training program that they control, they use it very often to break people down in a controlled environment where you, you're in a bubble and it's, it's like a pressure cooker and they start working on you and they basically tell you, look, you know, I'm, I'm quoting scripture. Everything I say is scriptural. If you disagree with me, you disagree with God. You disagree with the word of God, and therefore, uh, sacrifice uh, your pride. Uh, don't don't be rebellious. Don't mm -hmm. have a rebellious spirit. John Brevere. Pride becomes questioning authority. Rebellion becomes questioning authority. If you're a woman, it's a Jezebel spirit, you know. And it just all it's all about breaking people and then changing them and then locking them in. And, uh, and, and then, you know, in some of these groups, you hear this, you know, loud sucking sound at your bank, which is your money, you know, evaporating Going down the into drain, the yeah. group. Yeah. Hmm. And then you're left with nothing when it all falls apart. Yeah. Rick, I'm extremely interested in how you even got involved in writing about cults and, uh, you know, being an expert. How did this all start? Well, it started in 1982, Chris, when I was, uh, uh, visiting my grandmother. I, I'm Jewish, and my grandmother lived in a Jewish nursing home, and she was 82. And a group that targeted Jews for conversion to fundamentalist Pentecostalism uh, had infiltrated the paid professional staff of the nursing home with the wow. agenda of targeting the elderly people there. Now, okay. I have no objection to people sharing their faith. If they came to the front door, to the front desk and said, hey, we want to share what we believe with people here at the nursing home. I think that's fine. But to covertly get jobs at the nursing home to target people and, and to do that surreptitiously, I thought was really unethical. And so I became uh, an anti-cult activist, community organizer, and I worked on many interreligious committees uh, I served on the National Committee for the Union for Reform Judaism on Interreligious Affairs and a wow. subcommittee on cults. And we worked with uh, Christians and uh, uh, we worked with uh, various denominations in an effort to come up with what we considered reasonable ethical guidelines for uh, missionaries or, or proselytizing, recruitment and that people shouldn't target uh, one faith, that they shouldn't uh, go after family members without notification if it was a minor child, uh, uh -huh. that you shouldn't be cruising nursing homes and hospitals uh, without permission. And, um, and a lot of people signed up on this, and some people 
didn't feel it was a, a good thing and they were against it because they wanted to operate in that way. So that wow. began my work in the 80s and, uh, and then it just kind of snowballed and here I am many years later. That's incredible. Absolutely so incredible. organic too, yeah, because I heard mm-hmm. you talk on another podcast. I mean, you were a mechanic pretty much before you started being a deprogrammer, which I guess... Uh, not not quite, not, <laughs> not quite, Omar. What happened was I worked for a cousin who owned a wrecking yard, and I was actually uh, the vice president in charge of sales and acquisitions oh. for the yard. And I did rebuild cars. Uh, and, and, uh, I, I, I have to admit, I didn't do it myself. I subbed it out. You weren't turning <laughs> the wrenches yourself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was a big wrecking yard, a big, big business. And, uh, I was very into it. I love cars, but, uh, when I got involved dealing with, uh, radical, uh, groups trying to recruit people and, and manipulate people and, and all of that, and I saw the, the need there to deal with those groups. Uh, I started out as a volunteer, and the next thing I knew, it was it was my life. You found so your calling. It was uh, it really kind of happened. It just yeah. happened. Yeah, I mean, it's good work. It's important work, and I'm glad you're doing it. Like, I mean, everything you said about uh, YWAM or just uh, would you call it? We call them discipleship programs. Is spot on. And thank you so much for saying all that. That's that. I hope that my friends or family people that I've been involved with got to hear your words because that that's saved a lot of lives. We're not lives necessarily, but a lot of money. I think so. Yeah, I think so. Mental health. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what are some of the groups that you've worked with? I guess, like, what are the most destructive? Is it is it the Christian faiths, like the the cults that revolve around Christianity, or is it you know I don't I don't even know. Like, I've heard. Right. The Rosnishis, the, you know, what, what are the most destructive ones? Let's start talking about that kind of stuff, like well, the, the craziest cults you've been involved with. First of all, let me introduce you to a, a term that I like to use. I call it facotomy. Uh, facotomy. A group uses a facade of the Bible, religion, whatever, to huh. basically screw you. So, you know, they have this facade. I, love I, that. I like it. I love it. I am a Christian. I am a Jew. I am a Buddhist. I am a Hindu. I am a, a political idealist. I am your dance teacher, your yoga instructor. It's all about yoga and meditation. And it's all facade. And those scary running cults. Don't forget about those. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> like a mask. And so you have groups that are marketing themselves using credible religious themes like Christianity or Judaism or Hinduism or Islam. You know, in my, in my view, Osama bin Laden and al-Baghdadi, who headed al-Qaeda and ISIS, were, were cult leaders. Yeah. They were uh, personalities that uh, garnered followers and manipulated people through Islam to become their pawns. And so what you what you look at is uh, not what the group says it believes, but what it actually does. You know, actions speak louder than words. Having said that, you know, I've dealt with some very dangerous groups. Uh, I consider Scientology pretty, pretty serious business. Um, They have uh, stalked me, harassed me, uh, targeted me. I am because you're a suppressive person. 
Oh God, I am like the SP of SPs. I mean, whenever I mean, uh, just to 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 be in the in the room with me is uh, is is uh, a potential trouble source. They have your poster on the wall. Yeah, today, like, don't know. talk to this guy ever. Yeah, PTS, PTS, <laughs> and uh, potential trouble source. But yeah, wow. I'm a suppressive person in SP, and I've been on on the top 100 uh, SP list for I think for a while. Congratulations, but. but uh, so, so that group has harassed me. They hired a private investigator to stalk me, have me under surveillance, oh. uh, attack me, and so on. Wow. And then I had another group, Nexium, uh, mm-hmm. led by Keith Ranieri, where they, they went through my garbage. They had me under 24-hour surveillance. Uh, they tried to set me up in a phony intervention case. Uh, on a cruise ship in the middle of the ocean. What? Uh, my lawyers thought they were going <laughs> to maybe throw me overboard. Yeah, you think? Uh, <laughs> Holy shit. So I, I, I have I have been stalked. I've been harassed. Uh, right now, uh, the uh, Justice Department of the United States sends me regular advisories about the sentencing and uh, disposition of defendants in uh, Nexium, the Nexium criminal case. Because as you may recall, uh, Keith Ranieri, uh, this cult leader of Nexium, which was a seminar selling group, not about religion, about uh, some kind of philosophy that he called rational inquiry. But that was just another facade to, you know, facademize people. And uh, basically, uh, Ranieri was convicted for sex trafficking, yeah. racketeering, uh, you know, just uh, multiple offenses, tax fraud, branding, uh, and and he sued me for, by the way, for 13 years Whoa. before the lawsuit was dismissed in federal court. Not long after that, he was arrested uh, in Mexico, hiding out in Puerto Vallarta. And uh, I mean, this guy was, you know, I mean, what can I say? He's like a rodent. I mean, wow. he was just a rat. And he hurt a lot of people. I mean, he he physically tortured women. He had a, a doctor that was one of his followers that literally in, in branded women with his initials yeah. using a cauterizing knife. That's crazy. Uh, and women are now having their bodies repaired by, uh, you know, by plastic surgeons through a fund uh, established after his conviction. But I mean, this guy was really, he, he had followers that were very wealthy. He had two Seagram's liquor heiresses, uh, Claire Bronfman and Sarah Bronfman, who between the two of them probably had about five or 600 million at least. And they dumped about 100 million or maybe even 200 million helping Keith Ranieri. And uh, one of them now is facing probably about two to three years in prison, Claire Bronfman. Wow. Wow, that's insane. You said, I mean, with all that money that cults make or have and basically the force they have behind them, it's scary. Like you said, they're in your trash. They have you know, the resources um, to come after you. How are you and your institute able to like fight back? And you're talking about like Scientology and, and Nexium, these, these huge like. They've got massive resources. Right. Like how do you fight exactly. that? Yeah. Lots of money. Pro bono lawyers, uh, people, there There are many law firms. Um, I could go down a long list, but suffice to say that 
um, one law firm in New Jersey, Lowenstein Sandler, uh, provided uh, what would, would be considered millions of dollars in pro bono legal assistance. Wow. Uh, and uh, Public Citizen in Washington, D.C. was helpful. The Berkman Center at Harvard University. Uh, without pro bono legal help, I could never have survived all of the litigation. I've been sued five times by different uh, groups called cults, and the Nexium suit went on for 13 years. I mean, it, these were all lawsuits that were dismissed, but the objective of suing somebody like me is to harass. And basically, if they have more money than you, they want to spend you into bankruptcy. Right. You have to pony up your legal fees. They have a bottomless pit of money, some of these groups. Uh, certainly Nexium did, and Scientology does. Right. Uh, so so you, you have to have pro bono legal help. And I have been very fortunate to have many uh, uh, law firms, individual attorneys help me. And if it wasn't for that, I, I don't know what I would have done. So I'm very grateful to them. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really cool. Um, Elizabeth, do we have any Facebook questions? Yeah, she just sent you one, she said. I just sent All one right. in the question and answer box. All right. It says Matt Carter from the Bad Christian Podcast, shout out to those guys, is asking uh, if Rick could discuss links between cults to conspiracy theory thinking. Oh, yeah. That's... Oh, this is really uh, intense. You know, there's this guy, David Icke, that they're talking about a lot. He's spinning conspiracy theories. And a lot of a lot of groups uh, will use conspiracy theories to leverage people. So they, they create fear and then they engender a sense of dependency upon them for protection. So in other words, I, I create a conspiracy theory. I make you feel the bad guys are out there. They're they're out there to get you and your place of safety is with me. I will protect you. And so they set themselves up as the protector and this is a way of you know basically uh compromising people and taking over their lives mm, it's like the and, republican and democratic fear. party pretty much <laughs> <laughs> well you know engendering fear so you know you have people that have unreasonable fears so for example in in a bible-based group people will often believe if i am not with this specific organization being discipled by its leaders, I will probably go to hell. I mm. need this group to, to save me. But, you know, from a Christian perspective, salvation is a gift, not a, a deal that you make with an organization to be their puppet. So, uh, you know, uh, that is the difference between um, an organization that's using the Bible to uh, take advantage of people in an organization who is just a typical Christian organization. Basically, uh, from a Christian perspective, uh, I, I've heard this many times, uh, destructive Bible-based groups preach salvation by works. They really don't believe in salvation by grace. They believe that you have to work for them and you have to be with them, which is a work in order to have salvation. So they make you have unreasonable fear. And so they may project conspiracy theories all around you so that you feel, I need to stay here with this group. 
it's where I'm going to be safe. And they present maybe absolute truths, you know, and I think that would be where the conspiracy theory link may be too, where they're like, well, these people are lying to you. We have the absolute truth here, you know, and you can't find the truth anywhere else but here, which, I mean, that sounds like Christianity, but whatever. <laughs> well, no, you know, there's a big difference between Christianity and a cult. Yeah. Well, first of all, Jesus was, <laughs> was a terrible cult leader because he didn't make a lot of money. He didn't buy all kinds of uh, toys for himself. I mean, he rode a donkey into Jerusalem and it was borrowed. Uh, and he, he just lived from day to day. And, and rather than his disciples dying for him, he died for his disciples. That is not like any cult leader that I've ever dealt with. I mean, they would throw, cult leaders will throw their followers under, under the bus in a heartbeat that oh, I yeah. deal with. So, so basically, when you're talking about, it, it seems to me, typical Christian belief is, yes, uh, we believe that salvation is of Jesus and the Bible and so forth, but we don't tell you that if you aren't in the Southern Baptist Convention, you're lost. We don't tell you if you're a Methodist or an Episcopalian that you're lost. It, it's not about an organization. It's about it's about a, a, a religious belief system, and it's not uh, it's not restricted to one specific organization. If it's a typical Christian church and not a destructive uh, Bible-based group, yeah. Well, what do you think of the Great Commission? You know, because that's where that comes in. For people who um, don't know what the Great Commission is, could you explain that? Yeah, and you mentioned this earlier, but I mean, I wanted to ask this question earlier. What about people who, with like nursing homes, like going in and evangelizing, right? Because the Christianity has this idea called the Great Commission, which is, you know, that you go and make disciples of men. There's even uh, classes out there called Perspectives, which are all about um, bringing um, everyone to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that once that happens, Jesus Christ will come back again, um, which drives a lot of religious thinking. Uh, but like, how, what do you think about that and how that ties in with like cult behavior? Well, I think great, the, the idea of the great commission and evan, evangelizing people is perfectly fine. I don't see a problem with it. You go to the front desk of the nursing home and you say, hi, I'm with the church of, uh, uh, church of Christ. I'm with the, uh, United Methodist church. I'm a Baptist here in the, in the community. And I'd like to come and meet with people at the nursing home. Here's my name. I've got my Bible. I do Bible study. I share my faith with people. And would you please put it on the bulletin board if somebody wants to study with me or, or, or talk with me that I'm available. And that's an upfront, honest way of doing it. What I have a problem with is targeting minors without parental notification and consent. Uh, going after people who are sick and in a nursing home or a hospital without their family's knowledge and without even going through the administrative process at the hospital or nursing home. So when, when you're, if, you know, uh, I look at it this way. Jesus was very upfront. His disciples were very upfront. They didn't play games. They, you know, the Apostle Paul said, you know, here I am, you know, meet me on Mars Hill. Let's have at it. It was very open and honest, 
And I think that's the way it should be. If people are interested, if, if my grandmother had said to me, you know, Mrs. Goldstein, uh, down the way, she has this lady that comes and studies the New Testament with her. As long as Mrs. Goldstein wants that lady there and they have an honest, open relationship, I don't see a problem with it. All right. Well, speaking of conspiracy theories and Christianity, let's dive into Waco. Because, <laughs> <laughs> right, I mean, the Branch Davidians. That, you know, David, he believed the Bible. You know, he, he was one of those ones where, I mean, like, it seems like from all indications that I've heard, and this is, I'm a little nervous about having this conversation with you, Rick, honestly, because I, I don't know, because you're the expert, you were there. And I don't, I don't know, because I'm, I lean kind of anti-government conspiracy theory. Like I think the government fucked that up. Well, that went up pretty bad. Um, well, Janet Reno even said so much. So I mean, but yeah, I think you're not far off. But well, yeah, yeah. Let's get into look, it. <laughs> I, I do think that the government made mistakes, and I'll tell you. First of all. The Child Protective Services in Texas did an investigation of David Koresh, who I originally knew as Vernon Howell, and uh, that was his given name. And they did an investigation, and they said the kids were fine, everything was fine. And there were kids getting raped, and there were kids mm. being abused. I mean, later, when a psychiatrist, David Perry, would examine, interview the 21 children who did get out of the compound, all of them were abused. And, and he recounted that in his, his report, his research. So, so the, first of all, the government blew it when they did the investigation about children being abused in the compound. And uh, they gave them a pass. And then after that, I think the government was wrong in staging a raid the way they did. I mean, when the BATF came to me, and, and they talked to me and they talked to a, to a young man that I deprogrammed successfully. They knew how intense this group was. They knew how uh, they were expecting to wage some kind of war with Satan. They knew that they had a huge stockpile of weapons and ammunition. The idea of going in there and just raiding the place like they did was wrong. I mean, what they should have done is establish a perimeter, had the local sheriff call in, uh, and they could have at least avoided the bloodshed that occurred in the initial raid. Now, subsequent to that, I, I was called by the FBI, and I did interviews with the FBI. I had two agents of the FBI assigned to me uh, in which I could share ideas with them, and they would call me. And I, I spoke with one of the key negotiators uh, of the negotiation team uh, during the standoff. And of course, I worked for CBS News as an analyst during the standoff as well. So I would say. Oh, yeah, well, I watched YouTube videos, so I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so, so look, look, let me just say that where the FBI made a mistake. He made a number of mistakes uh, during the standoff. But in fairness, the FBI had never had a standoff like this with a cult group. So they, they were working from a playbook that had to do with hostage negoci negotiation that was just totally inapplicable. I mean, these people were not hostages. They were ardent supporters of David Koresh. 
They believed in what he said without question. Uh, they they were there uh, not as hostages. They were there as as true believers, Davidians. And so what I think they should have done is they should have been much less aggressive on the perimeter. And then mm. at one point they had these loudspeakers set up. Yeah. And they were playing crazy things on the loudspeakers like rap, screaming, rock and roll music to keep these people up all night. And, and I it almost said, seemed like torture. Well, it was, yeah, I, it was, I agree it with was, you. I agree like, with horror, you. like screaming music. It was, no, it uh, was, it was, it was out of the playbook that they used when they were negotiating with Manuel Noriega and he was holed up, you know, and, and this, this is a different playbook and it's not the right book with this group. And so I told the FBI repeatedly that there were parents that wanted to come to Waco. There were parents in Waco that wanted to talk to their family members that were in the compound and that they should use the loudspeakers nine to five only. Let them get plenty of rest during the night, which would allow them to, to be well rested and to think more clearly than being fatigued and then have their parents talk to them through the loudspeakers and say, look, we're here, we love you. We want you to come out. We will help you. We have a lawyer that we've hired, et cetera, et cetera. And the FBI did not do that. So the FBI made a number of mistakes uh, during the standoff. But let's, let me just be clear about this. Ultimately, David Koresh was the one who determined how this was going to be. He had armed the group. He had been tried for attempted murder and acquitted by a hung jury. Uh, in Waco when he tried to kill a guy that he was competing with, George Roden Jr., for control of the Davidian compound. So this guy had a, a, a history of being a violent guy, and he raped kids. I mean, I met uh, uh, Carrie Jewell, and she was raped when she was 10 years old by David Koresh. So this guy wow. was a pedophile. He was a sicko. And at the at the end, he determined what the end was going to be and he he the fbi would make deals with him they'd say okay we'll give you this if you let some kids out let some more people out and there were some people that trickled out but in the end he didn't want to let anybody out he kept breaking his promises to them uh he was supposedly working on on uh deciphering the seven seals of revelation and every time uh they said when are you going to be done well uh I don't know, I'm going to be done eventually. And they just saw it as endless. So mm -hmm. they finally uh, went in, uh, and you could say that it was a mistake, that they probably should have just let it play out as long as possible. Uh, there was no need to end it abruptly, but they felt otherwise, uh, which I think was a mistake. Or the gas that's he, so fireproof. You know, like, you know, uh, why well, wasn't there, I don't why wasn't think there, like, that they, there's no there. evidence that they actually started the fire. The evidence points in the direction of multiple ignition points. Uh, there was discussion of uh, torching the place by the Davidians that was recorded by bugging devices that were in the compound. There were multiple ignition uh, points that were recorded by aerial infrared photography. And in addition to that, they found the, the, the fuel oil residue. So, so there, it, in, in my mind, David Koresh decided at the end 
if I can't be king of my compound, I'd rather be dead. Mm. And these people are mine. They're going to die with me because I own them. And that was the same kind of attitude that Jim Jones had, same kind of attitude that Marshall Applewhite, the, the guy that led Heaven's, Heaven's Gate, yeah, he, yeah, he wanted everybody one, yeah. to die with him. And this is the what 90s, happens man. when a psychopath controls a cult group and uh, they're not stable psychologically and they just flip out they go over the edge and then the, the rest is very tragic we have a wow. we have a couple questions uh oh it's not about waco all right we'll, we'll fill some of the facebook questions right after we're done talking about waco so, um but yeah that so but you knew david uh, as vernon you said you knew him before all that how did you come in contact just through deprogramming some of the branch davidians is, is that well, how... the, the Branch Davidians in Waco were one Davidian group. The Davidian movement was started by Victor Howdeff in the 30s, and uh, it was a peaceful group, I want you to know. They lived in Waco very peacefully. Uh, Howdeff died, his widow took over, she decided to go to California and retire. Then this man, George Roden uh, Sr., took over, he died, his wife took over, Lois Roden. And that brings you to the time of David Koresh. Uh, he came to the compound. It had been a peaceful place for decades. Lois Roden was the leader. She was ailing and dying. And he basically took over. And once he took over, everything changed. And things got really crazy. And uh, I was called by families who were concerned about Davidians first about another Davidian sect, not the Waco Davidians. And I did uh, two interventions to get people out of that group. And then through that group, I began to hear about this violent, very intense group in Texas, which really nobody knew about generally because it was a very small group, maybe a hundred people. And uh, so then I was called by a family who had a young uh, brother who was who'd lived in the compound for over two years and he came home on a visit in california and i did an intervention to get him out and what i did not know is that at that time i was under surveillance by the church of scientology and they actually called david koresh <laughs> told him that i was deprogramming one of his followers wow. and i don't think he was very happy about that and I think Scientology thought, well, you know, he's got a lot of guns. If something bad happens, who cares? We don't like uh, this SP Rick Ross, you know, if he, if, he, if he gets shot, so what? But the intervention was successful. And then that young man who had lived in the compound and knew all about the weapons, the stockpiles, in fact, his, his charge card, his visa, had been maxed out by David Koresh, 5,000 at the time to buy bullets. And I remember thinking $5,000 worth of bullets, a lot of bullets. And that's a lot and of the bullets, guy, actually back then. Yeah, the guy that I was deprogramming said, well, that's just nothing compared to what he's got. So then when the BATF did their investigation, they contacted me. And then subsequently, I, I acted as a go-between and then they interviewed the young man that I had worked with who was a witness what weapons they had, what ammunition they had. In fact, uh, his affidavit was part of them, the process of them getting a warrant yeah. uh, to serve at the compound. Wow. 
And then during the standoff, there was a young woman who was locked out. Uh, she was visiting her family and she was locked out of the compound. She lived there. And her family called me and they asked me to do an intervention with her, which I did during the standoff in Waco uh, that was not known at the time uh, by the media, thank God. And it was also successful and uh, she moved on with her life. Uh, though uh, these people were devastated when the fire occurred because so many people they, they loved, yeah. their friends uh, died in that fire. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was a tragedy. Like, I think it affected all of us. I was a kid and I remember watching it on TV, just, and I didn't really understand what was going on, but it was still a sad thing. And as I've gotten older and gotten deeper into Christianity, sex, and stuff, it's one of those things you're like, well, don't be like Waco. And then, but the more you find out about it, like, man, that's, it's just it's exactly what you were, yeah. <laughs> um, well, you're talking about deprogramming people. We have a question from Facebook, um, say, which is say, Chris, let everybody know too, because we have like 15 minutes left um, right. live here. So if you have questions for for Rick Ross, um, please go ahead. Uh, Five dollars during the Patreon, you can be on as an attendee on the panel. Uh, as sorry, you can be an attendee on the webinar, and we'll do some more questions and answers after we're done being live. So go ahead. You can still have time to do that right now. So we'll try to get to your questions, but if for some reason you don't get to it or you want to meet them, we're going to keep talking to them. Um, if not for 30 minutes, uh, not live. So, but go ahead, Chris, I'm sorry. Yeah. So one of the questions we have here is, you know, what do you say to a friend that might be in a cult and what does the deprogramming process look like? Well, I, I write about this in depth in my book. There's a chapter on uh, coping strategies, a chapter on assessment, a chapter on preparation for an intervention. What you don't do is say, hey, you're in a cult. You know, <laughs> you're in a damn cult. You don't say that. You, you just uh, try to be very positive. Don't be critical. Don't be confrontational. Do a deep dive and drill down and find out what this group is all about. Uh, do some reading, some investigating. I think my book is a very good guide to that. And uh, then, then comes planning an intervention if you think that is an option for you, uh, which would be predicated on you have access to the person, they're going to come to your house for a visit, you could go to their place, uh, the communication lines are open and meaningful. And so then you do the intervention, which typically takes three or four days. So that's eight hours a day, 24 to 32 hours of work. Wow. And it's much like a drug or alcohol intervention where the family comes together. And you basically cover four blocks of uh, issues. One is uh, defining what is a destructive authoritarian group or a destructive cult. Uh, are there parallels with the group that you're involved in? Number two, how does coercive persuasion and thought reform actually work? Um, uh, how do people break people down and then change them and lock them into a new uh, way of thinking in which they can manipulate and control them? And are there parallels between the research about coercive persuasion, thought reform, and the group that you're in? Do they behave in that way? And then three, what about the group do you not know that you should know? Is the group withholding information from you? Is there, are, are there testimonials about the destructive nature of the group? Has it been sued? 
uh, has a, have they uh, been uh, criminally uh, prosecuted? I mean, what is there about this group or leader that you don't know that probably is in your best interest to know if you're going to continue? And then finally, why did your family do this? Why did they stage an intervention? What is it that they're concerned about, worried about? And at that point, the family is going to chime in and say, look, this is why we're here. And so you cover those four basic blocks during the three to four days. And at the end, the person that you're working with is going to make a decision. Uh, and that is, am I going to stick with this group or am I going to give, give myself a break and reconsider? And, uh, and I would say 75% of the time, uh, the person that I'm working with decides to leave the group. About 25% of the time, uh, they don't. And, and typically, they will leave in the first day or two. And they'll say, I just don't want to participate in this. Uh, and many times, the group is uh, interfering in the process. They're coaching the person. They're texting. They're, they're emailing. They're talking to them on their, on their cell phone. And uh, basically, they tell them, hey, break it off. Leave. You know, it's not like, uh, for example, in the New Testament, where it says we have nothing to fear from the truth and the truth will set you free. Instead, the group is saying, basically, we have everything to fear from the truth. Get the heck out of there. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. I was going to ask, what was the common denominator for like the 25 percent that don't end up leaving? But it sounds like it's just that they didn't get a clean break, that they didn't have that three day period that you need to deprogram like is there you say it's was the success rate even higher than say if you remove the people who got contacted within that three days like so what would you say the percentage would be of people who actually take your advice and and isolate for three days and you're able to to walk through the steps with the loved ones and and presenting the information i'm sure that i'm sure that percent percentages jump way up after people actually like following directions. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'll, I'll tell families. They'll say, well, how, how is this going to go? And I'll say the more time that we have, the more likely it is that the person will, will leave the group. So if at the end of day one, they agree to day two, and at the end of day two, they agree to day three, by the time you get to day three, you're up around 90% uh, success rate. But most people will bail uh, the ones that you fail with will leave in the first day or or two days, and or or they'll get through one day typically, and they'll say at the end, "I'm not coming back tomorrow. Uh, I'm done." Or during the intervening evening, they talk to people in the group, and the group says, "Hey, forget it. You're not going back." Uh, but more often, uh, the family is able to persuade them, and the family says, "Look, we love you." Uh, will you just give us this time? We need this time. And if the group is the truth and they're a good group, uh, they won't mind. And if the group is a good group and everything's okay, that'll come out. So let's just sit and work it through. And most of the people will do that. Cool. Yeah, it, it's scary. It reminds me, uh, one of the groups I was in in Alaska, we did this thing called Daniel Fast. Um, the first, I believe it was... 
three months of the program almost. It was it was a ridiculously long time where um, it had a lot to do with your diet and what you eat, but also we cut our, cut ties with all technology. And in doing that, we quit talking to our friends and our families, and it was encouraged like maybe once a week you can call your mom, and that was about it. And and it just yeah, wow, that's they were programming us. <laughs> oh, Omar, what you're describing is what is called environment control or milieu control uh, in a book called Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism by a psychiatrist, Robert J. Lifton. And so basically, if you can control everything around someone, you can control communication, socialization, the environment, you're controlling everything that goes into the mind so you can control the mind itself. And I think a lot of us have the mistaken belief that the human mind is very strong and we can resist anything. In reality, as you can see from advertising and political ads and so forth, the human mind is really quite persuadable. And if you can create a false uh, narrative and encapsulate someone uh, and, and give them, uh, you know, what I would call a false social proof, that is people around them are reinforcing what the group is saying and there's no critical commentary, there's no critique, there's just a basic cheerleading section for the group 24-7. Echo, and echo also, you can deprive people of sleep and control their diet. You can wear them out <laughs> and you can gain them in. That's exactly what deprive, yeah, deprive people of sleep and control your diet. That is Master's Commission <laughs> and a ton of show. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that's... Oh. Don't take away my steak. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a burger, please. I need protein. Rick. You know, you, you, we all need protein. We need to get seven, eight hours of sleep a night. If you if you disrupt that and you have people in an environment that you can control, you can really wear them out and break them down. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's not like people think of people who are in cults as weak people, right? They think of them as people who, uh, oh, I would never do that. I would never be susceptible to that kind of mind control or whatever. But that's not really the case. Like anyone is susceptible to becoming a member of a cult. Not me, Chris. And oh, well, I think the history <laughs> is, is that you might have already been there. Uh, you know, so what, what would you say to people who are, are so prideful like that? Like, I mean, do you have any advice for, for all those people? I would say you're setting yourself up. You're, yeah. you're, you're believing that you're invincible and therefore you're not being cautious. You're not looking for warning signs. You're not being a careful consumer because you think, hey, I can handle anything. And so but you're, you've set yourself up so that when a, a, a group like that comes along, you're not going to be looking for the telltale, warning you know, signs. red flags, the warning signs. And look, among the 500 people that I've done interventions with, uh, five were medical doctors. One was an orthopedic surgeon. One was an anesthesiologist. I did an intervention to help uh, a clinical psychologist get out of a cult-like situation. So it can happen to highly educated, very sophisticated people. And uh, I can remember the orthopedic surgeon. I write about this in my book. I write about that case. Uh, at one point, he looked at me when I was quoting research about the group that he was involved in, and he said, I'm a doctor, damn it. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, you are a doctor, but you know what? 
you can be had just like anybody else. Oh yeah. And what people don't realize is that uh, the people that bring you into a cult group are often people you trust. People that might, it could be a family member, it could be a, a brother, a sister, uh, it could be a spouse, it could be an old friend, a co-worker, and they talk about some group or, or seminar or something, and you don't really know what you're getting into, and you trust them, and they usher you in, and they themselves are true believers, so they're going to uh, exude confidence in this group, and so that's how people get in. And these groups are not uh, are not honest about their agenda. They don't tell you the the weird stuff in the beginning. They just it's a kind of a bait and switch con. They tell you, hey, it's all cushy, it's all great. This is all we're going to put forward all the good stuff, and then you get in and they start talking about the more demanding stuff, and they start escalating. It's, it's kind of like the old analogy of a frog in a pot of water on the stove, and the frog could jump out. But if you increase the temperature only slightly, instead of putting a frog into hot water initially, but you put it in tepid water, and then you gradually in, increase the temperature, the frog might keep swimming, not realize what's happening, and be boiled. Right on. That's this is awesome, and unfortunately, we're right at the hour mark, and so we're gonna have to start just kind of wrapping things down or wrapping things down because I, I, I want to get into the reason I brought you here is how do you start a constructive cult? <laughs> no, okay, I have been very quiet for the majority of this interview, and no, anyway. Billy Garcia, <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, uh, great, there you go. one of my heroes. He, yes, thank you. He had a wonderful cult following that he could rely on to attend his concerts, buy all of his uh, stuff, and uh, but he didn't hurt people. He just entertained them. And he knew that they were, they called him the deadheads. But uh, I, I, I would say it was a personality-driven uh, cult following. And they did worship uh, the Grateful Dead and, and Jerry Garcia. But he did not take advantage of them in the, the ways that we associate with destructive culting. Yeah. I mean, sports teams yeah. and stuff could be cult. I mean, we can get in. We'll, we'll, we'll keep going. But we'll wrap here on Facebook. I know Chris wants to give you guys the schedule and some things like that. But if you want to keep talking with Rick, we'll be a little bit more loose, a little bit more informal for the next 30 minutes. Um, you know, if you want to join the fade to gray cult, this is your opportunity. Um, if I are not a cult, $5 a month or just $5, you can jump in to kind of see some things we offer. If it's not for you, jump back out. Um, we're not offended. Um, this is, this is us. This is who we are. Um, it's an honor to have guests like Rick Allen Ross on. Thank you so much. And really just want to create a real environment where people can be themselves and, and talk about a conversation like this, things that may be considered fringe or taboo um but it, it affects real life and so let's let's get into it so. yeah so um super excited about the rest of today uh so at one o'clock we're going to be talking to robert monk right i i thought it went great i'm super yeah, stoked you, on you it I'm excited. We, I think you we did didn't too. get into. I mean, every. I, I knew we I weren't going to get into everything, but I think it was well. I was very quiet. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Everyone's happy. Like, it's a great, it's going great. Seth isn't talking. This is wonderful. It's the best thing ever. So thrilled. All right. Can this happen Sorry, more Are you often? okay to stick around for like another 20 minutes to talk a little bit? No. Okay, cool. Uh, this, is, this has been great, honestly, Rick. I mean, I don't know how you feel about it but i mean even to maybe doing a part two in the future to some of this stuff oh i would love there's that. so much stuff that like i would love to get into that we didn't get into um what do you want to talk about chris you want to get into the elites i mean yes um so you hear conspiracy theories all the time about like all these hollywood elite people and you know even you know really important businessmen like bill gates and you know Epstein and Clintons well, and all this shit being Bill involved Gates in definitely is the one who's responsible for Corona, right? COVID. <laughs> but you hear about them being involved in, in stuff like uh, Illuminati or, you know, whatever. Um, is there any truth to any of that? And do you know, like, do you, ha- do you have any information or, or anything like that on those? I have not. I, I hear about it all the time. I'll get yeah. an email. I'll have people call me up and they say, you know, the Illuminati are out to get me. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, the Freemasons are, are going to get me. The, the, there are witches and voodoo people that are out there. They're going to get me. And what I would typically say to them is, what is the name of the leader of this group? And mm. where are they located? Yeah. And they'll say, well, I, I don't really know the name of the leader. And I, I don't really know where they're located, but I know they're out yeah shadow governments and so i think that becomes a kind of imagined thing and it's not solid what i see as being solid are celebrities like let's say madonna uh shilling for her group the kabbalah center which i regard as a cult or tom cruise and john travolta trying to you know recruit people into scientology by you know, extolling how great Scientology is, and um, or or John David Travolta, Lynch, what a creeper, uh, pushing uh, transcendental meditation. So, so there are celebrities that are involved in controversial groups and movements that will promote those groups and try to sell it to the public. And I think that's where the elite uh, and cults connect. You don't think they're drinking people's and, uh, kids' uh, blood or I'm anything, though. About. <laughs> You're not you're not concerned about them out there drinking kids' blood though. Are you? <laughs> you're not there you're not concerned about vampirism cults or anything like that. It was with the elite. That's that's like the when you deep dive into some of the uh uh <laughs> real conspiracies, that's where the cult is. Like there's the like long life they live longer if they, you know, suck the blood of kids or some shit. They look younger, yeah. all that stuff. Well, there was a there was a vampire cult that was led by this guy Ron pharaoh who's now in prison and they killed people and he believed that you know he was a vampire and so forth and it was a cult and the people in it obeyed pharaoh followed his instructions did whatever he said and people lost their lives uh but generally speaking i i don't know of any vast vampire conspiracy you know how much did beyonce pay you to say that (laughs) how much did beyonce pay you to say that Uh, i get a a few free tickets but not a lot (laughs) but jay-z is going to come through i think okay gotcha there we go that's what matters man so did you deprogram any of those people that were in the vampire cult or did you just know about that because of your line of work that like obviously i i know about that because i followed the case 
and uh, it, it, it was a high-profile case. In fact, Ron Farrell just recently uh, tried to have his prison sentence reduced, and the judge concluded that, you know, that he was a disgusting, destructive guy, and basically not redeemable, and that he should stay in prison indefinitely. Um, we had a couple of questions on, uh, on Facebook earlier that we didn't get to, um, our friend, Paul Matthew Harrison was asking about Jesus people USA because he spent some time living there. Uh, and then also our, uh, our friend Renee wanted to know a little bit more about Scientology. Um, I don't really know what the question is there, but, uh, yeah. What do you think about Jesus people USA? Pardon? What do you think about Jesus People USA? Do you know anything about those I've people? I've received complaints about them from families, uh, young people being recruited. This is a group in Chicago, mm-hmm. and they have you know they have uh, residential housing there. Uh, they've been a controversial group. Anyone who is thinking of a Japuza, as it's commonly referred to, or Jesus People USA. I would encourage you to go to the Cult Education Institute, look at the database subsection on Jesus People USA, read some of the articles and accounts there uh, that have been archived, because this is a controversial group, and uh, people should know the history before they get involved. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, one of my last comments, and I'm not really sure, I haven't heard you speak on the Rush Nishis at all or the Bagwan, but I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina right now, and I grew up here, and I can remember I was like 15, 16 years old when they, with the bag, the bag, speaking of t- these sweet t-shirts, um, they had like bag the Bagwan t-shirts that people were wearing. I can remember that in my mind's eye, and I didn't know anything about it because I was a kid. Then I watched Wild Wild Country on Netflix, and I started putting it all together. I'm like, oh yeah, because they arrested him in Charlotte on his way as he was trying to like leave the country. Um, have you deprogrammed any of the Roshnishis? Um, What do you know about that group at all and can speak on? Because it seems like, obviously, they turned into a pretty destructive cult in the end. But a lot of the stuff that he was preaching, I mean, he was selling meditation is how he got so rich. But, I mean, I don't know if a lot of the message was destructive. Um, But we can see the fruit of what they did. Anyway. What do you know other than the documentary? Do you know anything more about the Rajneeshi cult? Well, I, I remember the group uh, being in Oregon uh, in, in the early 80s, and I would get calls from families who were concerned about family members who were in the compound. What Rajneesh did was he, first of all, he was a college teacher in India, and he, has a, he had a PhD. He's dead now. He died from a heart ailment after he was basically told to leave the United States or be arrested here and go to jail. So, so what happened was Rajneesh had his compound in Pune, India. It was very successful. He decided to move to near Antelope, Oregon. He created a kind of city. You can see the documentary on Wild Wild uh, Country on Netflix. But what the documentary doesn't really show is how depraved Rajneesh really was. I mean, they allude to it. He had a very serious zipper problem. He took advantage of a lot of of women and exploited them. Uh, I believe that Mashila, the woman who who basically was uh, convicted and went to prison, 
that she basically was thrown under the bus by Rajneesh. She's a badass too. Uh, and that he really was in charge of everything and he should have gone to jail. And what they do show you is that he had 90 Rolls Royces mm-hmm. uh, given to him by members. And they do talk about uh, the first act of uh, bioterrorism in United States history, which was uh, perpetrated by the Rajneeshis when they yeah. poisoned salad bars all over the area of Oregon, trying to make lots of people sick so they couldn't vote, so they could try to take over the local that's, government. That's where it, Hundreds yeah. of people were hospitalized through that. It's crazy. And then drugging all the homeless people, too. That's <laughs> Yeah, and they got a raw deal. I mean, once they got there, you know, they wanted to use them as voters. And uh, then once they got there, they found out, hey, this is not a good deal being with these people. And in my opinion, it was a classic uh, destructive cult. Rajneesh was an object of worship. He was the ultimate master. Uh, He would tell them that. Uh, He would say, the key to enlightenment is having a living master. And then he would allude to Buddha, Muhammad, Jesus, and he would say, you can't really uh, reach enlightenment with a dead master. You need a living master. And that was him. And he would literally sit on a throne. People would, uh, you know, uh, go into a a kind of ecstatic uh, trance trance in front of him, chanting, singing. It looked like a revival, but it was his kind of revival. And it was all about him. He was the defining element, the driving force of the Rajneeshis. And whatever he said was right was right. And whatever he said was wrong was wrong. And Mashila, who you see in the documentary, She started as a teenager with him, and she really lost herself and ended up in terrible trouble as a result of his influence. Yeah, it is a really sad story. And the way that Netflix portrays it, you have some of the ex-members or members, you know, 20-some-odd years later, basically... it seemed like they were still very still loyal to the cult that they were once part of and and had had only fond memories it seems like the members of the cult had nothing but good things to say about it still you know two decades removed and every all the craziness exposed that's that's some serious mind control i don't know well i would i uh i would say that was a very intense group because he taught trans induction so they had a kind of meditation in which, in my opinion, he would use a hypnotic trance and then he would suggest things to them and he would implant things in their minds. And uh, it was a very intense group. And of course, Rajneesh Puram was an, a, a bubble, completely yeah. controlled by Rajneesh. And there, the people weren't getting any critique. They weren't getting any accurate feedback. Uh, they believed whatever he said. There was no one there to dispute anything he said. And he was an absolute dictator. It was very scary to the people that were the local people that that this was their home hometown, Antelope. And uh, all of a sudden, this group comes with thousands of people. They violate zoning laws. They're building a city without the proper permits and zoning. And they just believe they're a law unto themselves. And so it created a conflict. And then Rajneesh tried to literally take over local government. And when he couldn't, uh, you know, it just kept escalating. And the group had weapons. They had, uh, 
immigration violations. They had yeah. questionable marriages yeah. uh, to give people residency in the U.S. I mean, it was just a real mess there. Yeah. Mm. I really want to know about, uh, unless somebody else has a question about the Rajneesh group. No, I think that's good for that. And I'm going to run. We have a thing. Elizabeth's taking my spot if she has any, any other questions because she, okay. she's still indoctrinated as well. <laughs> um, I actually have a question. Um, I, I want to know about like satanic cults. Like I know that there are Satanists who are not really believing in Satan. They're just, you know, more human, uh, humanitarians or whatever, uh, or humanists, excuse me. Um, but have you dealt with any groups that actually worship the figure of Satan and do like really weird. Cause I've heard stories of cults where they'll be baptized in, you know, urine and, and feces or whatever blood uh, and, you know, make uh, baby sacrifices and stuff. Have you, is there any validity to any of those groups? Well, they, now you're going back to what was called the satanic panic of the 1980s. And there were all these anecdotal stories about, uh, babies being sacrificed and and bizarre initiations that you've described. And when the police drilled down into this and the authorities, they couldn't find anything. They couldn't find any objective evidence, uh, bodies, uh, remains of some sort that they could actually track. So a lot of these stories turned out to be false. There were people that were falsely imprisoned, some of whom have been let out of prison uh, in recent years, uh, and and they have been exonerated. So I think that was really kind of a, uh, uh, just a really, uh, not an honest, good uh, evaluation of these groups. Kind of like a witch hunt. If, if a group is a sat- satanic group, you may find their beliefs uh, repugnant, but if they don't break the law, they don't hurt people, uh, they have a right to believe what they want. Uh, and Anton LaVey, who was the founder of the Church of Satan in California, I mean, he was flamboyant, he was wild, but they never actually nailed him for anything criminal. And so what he really was, in my opinion, was a con man who would just do anything to get publicity, and then he would make money off of it, off of the Church of Satan and its tax-exempt status. I mean, he was an opportunist. He was, uh, in my view, uh, a a con man, but I don't see him as killing people, uh, doing child sacrifices, and so forth. So a lot of these allegations about Satanism turned out to be mostly smoke and mirrors. Gotcha. Yeah. Seth? Well, I just, it made me think of in talking about like satanic rituals, like the West Memphis Three, um, those kids that were uh, essentially arrested for killing three kids but like they it was because they were wearing black clothing and they were attributing it to a satanic ritual and like all of the kids were completely innocent and it was like one kid's just crazy story but it's talking about the fear of satanic rituals and things but then there's like nothing there you know um i just thought of that yeah there was a the the shooting in colorado i think uh that you may be referring to and then there was also a a killing in Mississippi. 
and people would uh, speculate that it had something to do with Satanism. But when you really looked at what was going on, it was deeply troubled young people uh, who were very antisocial, acting out based on their own uh, personalities, their own experience, and they weren't linked to an organized satanic group. Well, Satan's a deceiver, and he's obviously worked it out on you. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Chris. Elizabeth, you got anything to say? <laughs> um, you can't, can you hear me through this microphone? Okay, yes. Because I can't hear myself through these headphones. This is weird. Um, thank you, Rick. I just wanted to say thank you for yeah. being part of our show and for sharing with us. Um I was just listening to your commentary on Youth with a Mission and Master's Commission and then your description of cult life. And like, I was part of YWAM and I can totally see everything you're explaining. Like, I can see that. Um, I was, I don't know if the word blessed is the right word or fortunate in that I wasn't part of some of the groups that you're talking about because I definitely can identify. I'm like, yes, I could see that there. I could see that there. I was with the program long enough or with the organization long enough. Uh, but the master's commission, like I was so far in, like how <sighs> I feel so much guilt for being the administrator. Like I was in the admin, like I accepted the applications. I created the applications that people would fill out online and they would get into the program. And like, there's so much guilt that I was in charge of advertising for this thing. I like, I would do the interviews for the kids and then I would bring the interviews to the leaders and they would say yes, yes, yes to whomever, you know, we never said no to anybody, but still like, how, how do I deal with that? <laughs> well, you, you have to ask yourself, did you sincerely believe what they were teaching you? Did, were you, were you actually thinking what's in it for me or were you in fact sacrificing yourself? I mean, were you making a bunch of money? Were you in it for the cash? Were, was, were they giving you something special? I think you were a true believer and you were under the influence of the organization. And I, I, I think that what you did was not criminal. Uh, the, where it gets really weird is when uh, someone does things that are criminal under the influence of a, of a destructive authoritarian group. Like, for example, Manson's followers killing people. Or the, in the case of the Waco Davidians, there were people that were arrested that did prison time. Uh, or at the group I mentioned, Nexium, uh, there are four co-defendants with Keith who are all going to do some time. Uh, and it's because they did criminal things. So you didn't do anything criminal. And uh, you were a true believer, and you thought sincerely that you were serving God, and that was what you were told. And I think you ought to give yourself a break and don't feel that guilt. Uh, just feel that um, maybe by sharing your experience and helping other people to see through groups like that, you're, you're, you're paying it forward. And you're saying, okay, I, I may have done some things when I was in the group, but now I'm helping people. So I'm going to equal this out. I'm going to do the best I can to, to help people uh, that are being hurt like I once was. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to go cry now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. 
Wow, this has been absolutely incredible, Rick. And and I also want to echo what Elizabeth said. Thank you so much for your time and for coming and talking to us about this today. And uh, you are a wealth of knowledge on cults. And uh, I think people would be, you know, certainly better off to have this information. So uh, you've written um, a book and uh, probably other things as well. I've, you know, I've listened to you on several of the podcasts. So where would you point people if they're wanting to learn more about you or learn more about cults? Um, promote yourself a little bit. I would uh, point people to the Cult Education Institute website, which is at culteducation.com. And there you can find a huge database of information, uh, including a a message board where uh, people talk about their experiences in various groups and an archive of historical documents and information about hundreds of different groups. And it's made in such a way that it, it's very easy to use and it's free. It's a nonprofit online library that was launched initially in 1996. And then the book Cults Inside Out is a compendium of information about destructive cults, including the history of many modern groups that people may not have known about. And also, how does cult brainwashing work? what we call cult brainwashing, which I would say is a synthesis of coercive persuasion, thought reform, and influence techniques, and also uh, talking about interventions, talking about people recovering, offering case vignettes so people can actually see what it's like to go through deprogramming and how these people are doing now and how they moved on with their lives. So the book is is very exhaustive. It's about 500 and some pages, an 18-page bibliography, and over 1,200 research footnotes so that people can really uh, understand this phenomenon and all of the research that can help them to understand it better. That's awesome. Are you on social media at all if people want to follow you there? Yeah, the Cult Education Institute has a Facebook page. I'm also on Twitter uh, under Rick Allen Ross. Don't confuse me with the rapper, Rick (laughs) Ross, please. And uh, so, yeah, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, and uh, people can follow me or they can, uh, you know, like the Facebook page and, and, and see the feed. And what you're going to see are breaking stories about uh, the phenomenon of cults and also about manipulation and uh, courts of persuasion, uh, uh, crazy conspiracy theories and why people might buy into them and, and why they should be more careful before they do. Oh, yeah, for sure. There's a lot of people that get wrapped up in all these conspiracy theories, and it's almost a cult within and of itself. So Yeah, it kind of is. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, Seth, you got anything? No, I just to say thank you so much for coming on. Um, I really feel um, like this information, this interview is is helpful for people um, specifically a lot of our listeners who come from, um, if not a cult, uh, you know, conservative religious backgrounds, which have cult fundamentalist. Um, yeah. Yes. Uh, a lot of <laughs> fundamentalists myself, my background is very fundamentalist. And so, um, just kind of hearing even kind of that unprogramming reprogramming, um, I think is going to be very helpful for, a lot of people, myself included. And so I just want to say thank you 
Um, and everyone, if you're listening to this, please check out um, Rick Allen Ross's materials. Um, there's a lot out there. So thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me Rick, I think what we'll end up doing is um, we haven't even discussed this yet, so I'm not sure, but there's a lot of really great information at the end of this uh, of this talk here at the at the very end. I know we didn't go live with this, but when we go to actually put this out as a podcast, we will make sure to include um, all all of your you know where you can be found and, and all that stuff. And, so and um, I'll put all of your yeah. links in our live Facebook video now too. I I linked your uh, website already, but I'll put this in there as well yeah okay all right what a pleasure it's been thank you for your time and and uh have a absolutely wonderful day okay i hope so (laughs) (laughs) all right take care take care